0: So during the early days of the pandemic, uh, when kind of we were all under stay-at-home orders and, and our lives were getting turned upside down, I think like a lot of you, I had a lot of time on my hands. Uh, and so, you know, Jen and I were like, well, what you know, what are we going to do? And so we started looking for things to do, and we decided we were going to plant a little garden in our backyard. Uh, so, you know, we were like, how hard could it be, right? Just plant a garden, we'll, we'll plant some vegetables and some fruit or whatever, and it'll grow, and then we'll have it in a couple months. It'll be great. Uh, And so I don't know if you guys know this, but here's a little bit of free expert advice. Uh, When you plant a garden, the goal is that your plants would bear fruit. All right. So that's free. Uh, If you want any more, I'm gonna have to charge. Okay. So if you plant tomatoes, if you plant a tomato plant, then you want the plant to produce tomatoes, right? Like that's the goal there's something satisfying about planting a garden and having a nice big harvest a few months later, right? Like just have it like, man, you see the fruit of your labor. That's where we get that term, the fruit of our labor. So we work, we put our hands in the dirt, we water it, and then it grows, and then we get to enjoy the fruit of our labor. Um, And it brings joy to us, right? It brings joy to the gardener whenever his crops produce fruit. So, um, you know, we, we set out to do that. We were hoping for a big harvest, but our little garden did not meet our expectations. Uh, it was pretty pathetic, to be honest with you. Um, our strawberry plants produced a couple of deformed strawberries uh, that the bugs mostly ate anyways. Um, and the same with our tomato uh, plant. I think maybe there was one tomato that came out of that or something, and the bugs ate the rest of it or the squirrels or something like that. Uh, our most prolific crop was actually cilantro. Uh, which I did happen to use quite a bit as I cooked. That was another thing I did a lot. I learned, uh, taught myself how to cook, Uh, and so I was able to use cilantro, um, but I think a monkey could probably grow cilantro. That was really easy. It's just like you just put it in the ground and it just grows. And um, In fact, we we even found a way to mess that up because we let it go to seed, which you're not supposed to do, and then there was cilantro everywhere. Um, So, boy, it was a mess. So we're probably not going to be gardening again this year. Uh, Our our garden experiment did not bring us much delight, but it was an amusing distraction. It was something to do uh, during the pandemic. Um, so in John 15, in this morning's text, we're going to learn that, that God is a gardener too. Uh, he has planted a vine, and He is highly interested in the branches of that vine bearing lots of fruit. So we're going to read John 15, uh, verses 1 to 17, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into the passage. So John, if, uh, hopefully if you've got your Bible, you've got a Bible. If you don't, there's Bibles on the pew backs in front of you. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And then Acts is right after John. So if you want to turn to John 15, I'm going to start in verse 1, and the words will be on the screen behind me as well. Here's what God's Word says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that you would teach us through your word. Holy Spirit, help us to understand the word of God this morning, to apply it to our lives. God, I pray that you would humble us and that we would each, um, God, hear what you have to say to us, that we would receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. God, I pray that you would build up your church, build up your people, Lord, help us to see that there is nothing better than Jesus this morning so that the result would be that our hearts would treasure Jesus and abide in Jesus. I pray that that would be the sole desire of our hearts, that we would abide in you, Jesus, that we would come to see and to know that there is life in no other name except for Jesus. I pray for those that are not trusting in Jesus, for those who have never abided in the true vine that today would be the day of salvation, that today you would open eyes and show those who don't know you, Lord, that you are the only way, truth, and life. That, that apart from you, we can do nothing. We cannot produce the fruit of righteousness that's required to please God apart from you. It's only in you that we can do that. God, I pray that you would open eyes and show us that and encourage your people, encourage your church, God. Lord, please meet with us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, this passage is, is really broken up into two parts. So verses 1 to 6 describes the metaphor of the vine dresser and the vine and the branches. And then verses 7 through 17 detail the, the how and the why of abiding. Uh, so verses 1 to 6 talk about the necessity of the branches abiding in the vine. And then verses 7 to 17 talk about the how and the why. So what I want us to do is look first at verses 1 to 6 to gain a solid understanding of what Jesus is teaching here. Um, and then we're going to look at the method of abiding and the effects of abiding. Um, so that's kind of the direction we're going this morning. Um, the gist of the metaphor in verses 1 to 6 is that the branches must abide in the vine to bear the fruit that is pleasing to the vine dresser. Okay? That's, pretty, that's the simplest way I could describe what Jesus is saying there. Verse 1 explains that God is the vine dresser or the gardener, all right? And like any gardener, the Father wants His vine to bear lots of fruit. And uh, we are the branches, and God wants us to bear fruit. And the fruit that God wants us to bear is the fruit of righteousness. It's godliness, Christ-likeness. And Jesus is the true vine that sustains the life of the branches. It's by being connected to Him that we bear this fruit, It's only by being connected to the vine that the branches can bear fruit. So, if I could summarize the point of verses 1 to 6 for us in a sentence, it would be, The only way we can bear the fruit of righteousness that is required to please God is to abide in Jesus. The only way we can bear the fruit of righteousness that is required to please God is to abide in Jesus. So, this vine imagery that Jesus is using here doesn't come out of nowhere. It's actually used throughout the Old Testament as a metaphor for God's people, Israel. The Old Testament depicts Israel as a vineyard or a vine planted by God for His pleasure to bear fruit. But listen to what Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7 says. It says, "...for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel." And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So what Isaiah chapter 5 and many other places in the Old Testament teach us and tell us is that although God had planted Israel, his choice vine to bear these fruits of righteousness, they failed to do so. He looked for justice, but instead found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness in his people, but instead found an outcry. Israel failed to bear the fruit of righteousness that God requires, and guess what? So have we. The fruit that comes from our lives is far too often ungodliness, not godliness. God wants us to bear this righteous fruit because we were made in his image, To reflect his likeness. But in our sin, we distort God's image. We don't bear his likeness and image. Instead, we we bear an image that's distorted of who God is. So Jesus is the true vine who came to do what we could not do. He came to fulfill the law and to produce the fruit of righteousness. Whereas Israel, the vine planted by the Lord failed to produce the fruit. Jesus has come and He says, I will do what you fail to do. I am the true vine that is able to give life to the branches so that they bear fruit. The reason that Jesus came was precisely because we, per- we failed to produce the fruit of righteousness that's pleasing to God. That's why Jesus came. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The fruit of our lives is rotten. The wages of our sin is death. So Jesus, the true vine, came and He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled the law and kept it perfectly. He never sinned. He was perfectly innocent. And then He died on the cross in our place to take the place of fruitless branches like us. You see, we deserved to be condemned for our rebellion against God and our fruitlessness. But instead, Jesus was taken outside Jerusalem, put on a Roman cross, and he bore all our sin in his body on the tree. Jesus received the treatment that fruitless branches deserved, which is to be gathered, to be taken outside, and to be burned. Jesus was, had a cross put on his back, he was led outside the city gates of Jerusalem, and he was put on a cross where he endured the fire of God's judgment in our place. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin, perfect, he knew no sin, he became sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. It's only by being united to Jesus by faith that we can be counted as righteous. And it is only when we are connected to Jesus, abiding and trusting in Him, that our lives will begin to produce the fruit of righteousness that is pleasing to God. You see, fruit naturally emerges based on its connection to the vine. You will never walk by an apple tree and hear it grunting with effort to try to push out apples. Like, Aah! Right? Right? <laughs> Apple trees don't have to put forth effort to produce apples, do they? Why is that? Because that's what they do. They just produce apples. That's what apple trees do. They don't have to try to grow apples. They just grow apples. Christians do not try to please God by their works. Rather, the fruit of godliness in our lives is a result of our connection to Jesus, the true vine. That's where the fruit comes from. Every true branch that is attached to the vine will bear the fruit of righteousness. It's an inevitable result. If you are not bearing the fruit of righteousness, it means you're not attached to the vine. You're not a Christian if you're not bearing the fruit of righteousness. And verse 6 explains that that anyone who is not attached to Jesus, the vine is like a branch that withers. It withers because it is not attached to the life-giving vine. And as a result, they are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burnt. And this imagery of being thrown away and burned means separation from God and hell forever. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 13:40 to 43. He says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. And they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Friends, please hear me. A judgment day is coming. And every single person will stand before God. And God will send the unrighteous, those who refused to abide in the vine, into everlasting torment, while those who have trusted in Christ will reign with him forever in the new heavens, in the new earth. Please do not trust in yourself for salvation. Do not say, I can produce these good works on my own, I'll be able to do enough to please God on judgment day. You cannot. If you are not attached to the vine, you will wither. And you will be found wanting on judgment day. Don't put this off. Don't say, well, I'll just deal with this later. I've got time. You don't know if you have time. We don't know how much time we have. This may be your last chance to repent and to trust in Christ. Why would you gamble away your eternity? Why would you roll the dice on that? You could walk out this door today, and you could get in a car accident on the way home, God forbid, and immediately you would stand before God. And do you know that at that moment, it will be too late. There will be no more time to decide. There will be no more time to change your mind. Don't put this off. It is only by being attached to the vine, only by being united to Jesus Christ, the true vine, by faith, that you can be saved, that you can produce the fruit of righteousness God graciously offers you mercy <clears throat> this morning. He will give you His righteous robes in exchange for your filthy rags of sin. What a glorious offer. The only thing that would keep us from that offer is pride. And As for the branches that are attached to the life-giving vine, Jesus explains in verse 2 that the Father prunes them, that they may bear more fruit, You see, the vine dresser is highly interested in his branches bearing as much beautiful fruit as possible. He wants to do everything he can to maximize the fruitfulness of the vine, which means removing branches that don't bear fruit and pruning branches that do bear fruit. Now, pruning is not always pleasant. It's the discipline of the Lord. But pruning is always for our good, church. Always for our good. Every single branch will go undergo pruning. It may come in the form of suffering. It may come in the form of seasons of long waiting. It may come through periods of testing. God puts us in positions of weakness and dependency so that we can experience His gracious provision and exercise more faith and trust in Him. God is radically committed to our fruitfulness, church, much more so than our comfort, much more so than our comfort. Charles Spurgeon comments on this passage, he said, much of our Lord's purging work is done by means of afflictions of one kind or another. It is not the evil but the good who have the promise of tribulation in this life, but then The end makes more than full amends for the painful nature of the means. If we may bring forth more fruit for our Lord, we will not mind the pruning and the loss of leafage. I just love that word leafage, by the way. I'm going to find a way to use that this week a couple times. I'm going to. So, God desires that we abide in Christ so that we bear much fruit. He is radically committed to the fruitfulness of his people. So the question then becomes, how do we abide? What does that look like practically? And what is the ultimate effect of abiding? Why is God so radically committed to our fruit bearing? Like, why is he so intent on the branches bearing maximum fruit? So those are the two questions I want to answer for the rest of our time. And I think the answer may surprise you on that second question. Let's talk about how we abide, the method for abiding. Uh, The first first thing I'll point out from the passage is I think we need to know God's heart. We need to know God's heart. Look at verse 9, and I want you you to, to read this verse slowly and really turn it over in your mind and think about what it's saying. Jesus says this. He says, As the Father has loved me, So have I loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, in the same way, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So God initiates a relationship with us because of his steadfast love. No one could abide in Jesus unless God first loved them. Jesus says here that He loves us. If you're a Christian, He loves you in the same way that the Father loves the Son. Now, the implications of that are massive. Let's think for a moment. How does the Father love the Son? Well, the Father's love for the Son has no beginning. God is triune, three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There has never been a time... When the Father and the Son have not been in a perfect union of love. Never. From eternity past, the Father and the Son have perfectly loved one another. The Father has loved the Son with no beginning, and Jesus has loved us in the same way. Ephesians 1 4 and 5 says that He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption. As sons. Later on in verse 16, Jesus will say in this passage, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. So if you are a Christian, it is because from eternity past, God chose to set His electing love on you. That's the reason you're a Christian. He has loved you in the same way the Father loved the Son. Well, how else has the Father loved the Son? He's, he's loved, His love for the Son has no beginning, but His love for the Son also has no end. The Father and the Son will always exist in perfect union. Nothing can tear them apart. Were the Trinity to be ripped asunder, God would cease to be God. The Trinity cannot be torn apart. The Father and the Son can never be separated. They never will. They will always exist in perfect, loving unity. And in the same way, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. Romans eight thirty five through 37 says it like this. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Church, There will never be a time where God will stop loving his people, ever. He cannot, because he is faithful to his covenant to love us forever. We cannot give him a reason to stop loving us because Jesus bore all our sin on the cross. It's already been paid for, past, present, and future. There's nothing you can do to make God stop loving you if you are in Christ. So, His love for you has no beginning, and His love for you has no end. The Father's love for the Son has no beginning, it has no end, but it also is without measure. The Father's love for the Son is without measure. God is love. He is a per- his love is a perfect and a holy love. All of God's attributes are perfect. They cannot be improved upon. Okay? That's what it means for God to be God. He can't be improved. God cannot, he's not becoming anything. He's not growing. God is perfect in all of his being. He says, I am who I am. So He is the absolute standard of righteousness and goodness and beauty and love. God's love is absolute perfection without any shadow or speck of taintedness. And Christ, that's the kind of love that the Father loves the Son with. And Jesus says, that's the same love with which I have loved you. Jesus loves us with the same perfect matchless love with which the Father loves the Son. Psalm 103.11 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. He demonstrated His perfect love by dying on the cross for wretched sinners like us. His love for us surpasses knowledge so much so that Paul prays, he actually prays for us in Ephesians 3.17 that you would have the strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He says God's love is so matchless, it's so glorious, it's so great that you can't. You don't even have the strength to comprehend it without God's help. We'll never even be able to fully understand it. The love of Christ... For his people has no beginning, has no end, and it is without measure. That knowing this is the foundation for abiding in Jesus Christ. Because it's as we know this about Jesus, that our hearts are drawn to him, that our affections are stirred for him, that we want to and long to abide in him. It's his love is the initiator in this relationship. He's the initiator. Look at verse 10 with me. As we think about, well, how do we abide practically? What does it mean to abide? Jesus tells us, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus says that the way to abide in his love is to keep his commandments just as he says, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So how did Jesus keep His Father's commandments, again, not by compulsion, not to earn His love. He already had the love of the Father from all eternity. Jesus didn't need to earn the Father's love. The Father already loved the Son from eternity past. Jesus abided in the Father by by obeying Him out of love for the Father, out of a position of already having received the Father's love. And He says, that's the same way you were to abide in Me. It's out of a position of having already received the love of God. It's from an assurance of God's love. So we abide by knowing God's heart. We abide by obeying God's commands. But again, we obey God's commands by knowing God's heart. These are all linked. So, Jesus isn't saying here, if you want me to love you, then you need to obey. He's saying, if you love me, you demonstrate it through obedience. God's love for us is the foundation for our obedience. Our obedience demonstrates that we understand truly how God has loved us. But what commands is Jesus talking about here when He says, you will obey my commands? Well, I think all of them... (laughs) But specifically here, he has in mind the great commandments. That, the great commandment that sums up all the other commands. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, you lay your life down for him and for one another just as he has laid your life, his life down for you. That's what he's saying in verse 12. Love one another in the same way that I have loved you. Look at verses 13 and 14. He goes on. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So what's Jesus saying here? He's he's saying, I'm about to demonstrate for you this greatest of all love. I'm going to lay down my life for you, my friends. And I'm calling you to go now in turn and to lay your life down for one another. Jesus is showing His disciples what it means to be a disciple. It means to follow Him to the cross. It's the fruit of a life that lays self down for others. God wants the same type of love with which He's loved us to be put on display in our relationships with other people. I'm going to say that again. God wants the same type of love with which He's loved us to be put on display in our relationships with other people. 1 John 2.6 says it like this. He says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Let me ask you, is this sacrificial Calvary love on display in your life and in your relationships? Is it on display in your relationship with your spouse? Is it on display in your relationship with your children? Is it on your on display in your relationship with other church members, with other Christians? Is it on display even with your enemies? With those who persecute you, with those who annoy you, with those who stress you out? Now, there are many people in our country and in our city who claim to follow Jesus, but they don't. This Sacrificial love is not on display in their lives. And if you are a follower of Jesus, but you are not walking in the light of His commands, chiefly the command to love one another as I have loved you, then 1 John 1.7 says that you're a liar and the truth is not in you. If you truly know the love of Christ, you cannot help but obey and love in the same way that He has loved us. That doesn't mean we will love perfectly like Him. But it does mean that the general pattern of our lives will be in alignment with His commands. Okay? So, is your life in an alignment with God's Word? Galatians 5 describes the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the, that's the kind of fruit that comes out of a life of someone who's abiding in the vine. And these fruits ought to be present in increasing measure in those who abide in Jesus. Not perfectly. Lord knows I don't have all of those coming out of my life perfectly. I have to pray daily for more self-control, for example. I have to pray daily for more gentleness because sometimes I have a tendency to be harsh and to be you know, just not patient with others. And so I pray for these things in my life. But they ought to be present in an increasing measure in the life of believers, They ought to be visible in your relationships with other people, especially with those closest to you, in your home. If you are a Christian desiring to grow in these things, the good news is that God doesn't leave us to do so in our own strength. Not only does God initiate an abiding relationship with us, but He actually also sustains it. And one of the primary ways that God sustains it is with the gift of prayer. This is the third, uh, the method of abiding. The third way we abide is that we pray the will of God. We see this in in verse 7. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So this is not a blanket promise to ask God for a Lamborghini and he'll give it to you. This is coming in the context of fruit bearing. Jesus is talking about, you know, he's telling us to bear fruit and then he says, if you need help bearing fruit, which you will, Then ask God, and He will help you. He will give you what you need to help you bear the fruit that He's calling you to bear. We can confirm this because Jesus restates it more explicitly in verse 16. In verse 16, He says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. So, this promise that God will give us what we ask for in prayer is related to Jesus' exhortation that we ought to bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. So God empowers and ensures our fruit bearing. And He has given us the gift of prayer as a means to helping us do so. Don't overlook the close linkage between prayer and the Word of God as well, by the way, here. Jesus says, if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. So to pray the will of God, we must know the will of God. We must know God's Word. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. As God's Word abides in you, and as you pray in accordance with His Word, Jesus promises that He will do it. How do I know the will of God in my life? Read your Bible. Know God's Word and pray in accordance with God's Word. And that's how you'll know that you are praying according to God's will, and that's how the promise of John fifteen seven comes into play. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, so when I was in the uh, military, I picked up the really bad habit of chewing tobacco, and I did so for over a decade. And several years ago, um, I knew, and I was convicted, and I knew I needed to quit, and I had tried to quit before, and it was really, really hard. But I was convicted, and I knew I needed to do it. And so uh, one of the things I did is I memorized 2 Timothy chapter 2, Verse 20 and 21, it says, Now in a great house there are vessels uh, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. So I took that word, I took God's word, I hid it in my heart, and I began to plead with God and to pray it. God, help me to put to death the deeds of the body. Help me to put away the dishonorable things in my life. Please, God, I long to be a vessel for honorable use. Remove anything in my life that's not pleasing to you. Remove this addiction in my life that I am going to like a slave so that I can be a vessel for honorable use. I prayed that. I asked other people to pray that for me. And guess what? I quit. God broke those chains, I moved on, I've grown, and there are many other examples like that in my life and in other people's lives. I can't stress enough the importance of memorizing Scripture and praying it in your life. You might say, Jared, I'm just so busy, I don't know how I'm going to have time to memorize Scripture. I promise you that if I offered you $1,000 for every Bible verse that you could memorize, by next Sunday, y'all would come up in here having a couple chapters memorized. Every one of you would, wouldn't you? I know you would, but what's more valuable, money that perishes or the eternal fruit of righteousness? What's going to last? A couple thousand dollars? Who cares? You can get that from your (laughs) stimmy. I still haven't gotten my stimmy. Church, we've been given a precious gift. Let's not waste it. Know God's will so that you can pray God's will. So if you're battling sexual sin, then go to war in prayer. Memorize and meditate on scripture that speaks to it. Ask others to pray with you and for you. If you can't forgive someone who hurt you, go to war in prayer. Look for passages that speak of God's grace towards you. Plead with God in prayer to change your heart. Ask others to pray for you and to pray with you. Go to war against your sin. Memorize God's word. Pray in accordance with His will. And He will help you to bear the fruit of righteousness. He's given us this gift to help us. We can't do it on our own. All right. So, here's how I'd summarize all that we've said so far. From start to finish, God initiates and sustains our abiding relationship with Christ so that we can bear the fruit of righteousness that pleases Him. From start to finish, God initiates and sustains our abiding relationship with Christ so that we can bear the fruit of righteousness that pleases Him. So He initiates it through His electing, gracious love, and He sustains it through His steadfast love through means like the gift of prayer in Jesus' name. So the last question I want to deal with is, why? Why does God do all of this? Why is God so radically committed to our fruit bearing? The short answer is so that we would be trophies of His glorious grace. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. How is God glorified? By us bearing much fruit. Just like a gardener has great delight when his garden produces much fruit, or just like a gardener will be very sad and disappointed like me and Jen were when our garden was pathetic and it produced a couple of deformed strawberries, God is glorified when his branches bear much fruit. So God graciously gives life to lifeless branches so that we can bear this fruit that reflects his goodness, his holy character. But this isn't a selfish act from God. This isn't a taking by God, but a giving. Because it's the flourishing of the branches, that's us that brings glory to the gardener. It's actually a win-win. As branches, we want to flourish. We want to live. We want to bear fruit because that's where our joy is found and our joy and the glory of the gardener are not at odds. They're actually connected. Look at verse 11. Jesus makes this connection for us. He says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's not calling us to abide in Christ to take away our joy. He's saying, this is what will give you joy. This is what will give you life. God is incentivized to work for the joy of his people because his glory and our joy rise together. Do you you see the implications of this? You see, most people think, even if they don't think this consciously, I think subconsciously, many of us think I either need to please God or choose to be happy and do what's fun. I can't do both. But it is actually as we bear the fruit of righteousness that we truly flourish. That's where true joy is found. It's in our obedience to God's commands that our lives truly fulfill their purpose. Listen, all this brokenness in the world around us is a result of our decision to rebel against God's commands. God has not given us His commands to restrict us from our ultimate joy. That's the lie of the serpent in the garden. Do you recognize that lie? The serpent promises he can deliver us something better than what Christ can give. But he can't deliver on what he's promising. He convinced Adam and Eve in the garden that God's commands were restrictive and keeping them from true flourishing, from true happiness. And They foolishly bought his lie and the results were catastrophic. Church, the only way for your joy to be full is to abide in Jesus' love by obeying His commands. God has given us His commands to maximize our joy. So as we keep them, God is glorified and our joy increases. Take, for example, dating. Sex outside of marriage. God has not restricted sex to be between a man and a woman in a monogamous marriage to keep us from true joy and fulfillment. God has given us the gift of sex within biblical marriage because that is where it thrives. That is His design. The Creator has designed things to work for our flourishing and for His glory. You shrug that off at your own peril true joy is found in obedience to God's commands. You can say, yeah, I don't believe that. I'm going to go do things my way. And I can promise you that sooner or later, it will end in destruction. There might be a little bit of fleeting pleasure now. Just like, I'm sure that fruit tasted good going down when Adam and Eve ate it. But they quickly realized the error of their ways. The most obvious example and the one that I'll close with is the command from our passage to Love one another as I have loved you. Now, throughout the Gospels, Jesus emphasizes that whoever wants to be first must place himself last and be the servant of all. In God's economy, the way up is down. The way to everlasting pleasure is to give, not take. The way to full joy is to lay your life down for others, not live for yourself. Here we talk about joy. Perhaps the reason some of you do not have any joy in your life right now is because you're living for yourself. You're so focused on what others should be doing to make your life better, but you're looking in the wrong place. That's not what's going to fix the issue. It's not everybody else all around you who if they if she would just stop doing this and if he would just start doing that and if she would just stop nagging me and if he would just, you know, get his act together, then things could be fine. You're looking in the wrong place. Joy is not found in being served by others. It's found in laying down your life for others. How many marriages would thrive if we would only heed that? If you have little joy, the best thing you can do is to go serve someone else. Jesus says, abide in me by obeying my command to love one another with sacrificial love. Then your joy will be full. Treasuring Jesus is the key to a sacrificial love because when you understand that all you need is in Christ, you'll be content and you won't feel the need to be served by others. You won't feel the compulsion to be first in line. I've got to be first. I've got to be first. I need this to make myself happy. When you understand that Jesus is your treasure and that all you need to do is abide in him and that by abiding in him your joy is full, I don't need to be first because I don't need that to be content. I can let others go first. I can serve others. I can let others experience gladness, and I can gladly go last and still be full of joy. You're set free when you find your treasure in Christ. So God wants us to bear fruit by abiding in Jesus for his glory and our joy. And maybe you're realizing this morning that you've never truly been connected to the vine when you look at your life, you'd say, I'm not bearing godly fruit in my life. I am not sure that I'm actually a Christian because my life just does not reflect this fruit of righteousness that you're talking about. The good news is that God is glorified in pouring out His grace on undeserving sinners. He loves to do it. He loves taking lifeless branches grafting them into the vine and breathing life into them so that they produce glorious fruit for the rest of their lives that brings Him great glory and them great joy. He can do that in you today if you'll trust Him, if you'll repent of your sin, confess your sin, place your faith and your trust in Jesus, in His death and resurrection on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins. I urge you to do that today. Don't put that off. Place your faith in Jesus this morning. Come and talk to me. Come talk to Thomas. Talk to Chad. Talk to to one of us, to Doug, any of us after service, and we'd be glad to talk with you more about how you can do that. I want to close with a time of prayer to give you the chance to maybe make that decision right now. And if you're a believer, I want to encourage you to use this time to take Jesus up on his promise and to ask him to help you bear fruit. So here's what I want you to do, I just want you to pray, Lord Jesus, please help me to bear bear the fruit of blank in my life this week. Please help me to bear the fruit of blank in my life this week. You know what that is. Whatever God's been saying to you as you've been sitting in your seat. Again, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, this is a time where you can pray and do that right now this morning. If you make that decision, please come talk to us afterwards. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, I just want you to pray, Lord Jesus, please help me to bear the fruit of blank in my life this week, whatever that is. So let's just take a moment to pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us with a love that has no beginning, that has no end, that is without measure. God, may you open up our eyes to see and to know, to experience this love so that we would treasure Jesus, so that our Soul sole desire would be to abide in you, Jesus, so that we could bear lots and lots of fruit. Lots and lots of the fruit of righteousness that will bring you glory and pleasure and that leads to our everlasting joy. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.